0: creative ideas can be tough to sell. You're trying to convince someone of something that doesn't exist yet. So I think design thinking says, okay, well, how do I make them feel less uncomfortable that this thing we're going to birth into existence isn't just magic? You know, it's a way to prove what value you bring even before the thing is created.
1: ado, I'd love to uh, have Eric introduce himself. He's a person I met through the community and we've gotten to know each other quite well. Yeah, he's a super cool, awesome human being. So without further ado, Eric, can you introduce yourself?
0: Well, hi everyone. My name is Eric Moore. You may see me online as quote, the design thinker. What that really means is I'm the only communication strategy strategist rather who blends design thinking with the art of nonviolent communication. And I do so transforming quiet leaders into influential storytellers. And what that means is I like to work with new and emerging leaders, people who might be new to the role and don't quite know how to communicate with their team because for so long, they've just been doing the work. And I like to work with older or executive leaders who maybe are losing touch with the their younger teammates.
1: Wonderful. Um, I'm kind of flying blind here a little bit and trusting myself in Eric's very capable hands. And so Eric, how do we structure today's conversation with the format? How does this work?
0: First and foremost, I think it's good to just hear what you think design thinking is. I'd like for you to just give your basic definition, some of your experiences with it, and then I'll dig into, you know, my professional experience maybe give a few stories. And then today I want to give people a, a gift no strings attached i'm going to give you a gift a couple of methods that i use so you can walk away with something tangible and as chris says make it real for you in your world what do you think chris does it sound okay
1: that sounds wonderful
0: what's your definition of design thinking because i know that that term feels a little clunky to some so
1: yeah it's oddly broad and specific at the same time and so i'm just going to throw out like and i'm no design thinking expert myself, but. I I think design thinking is a way of approaching a problem uh, to help you understand what your users needs are and helping them to achieve whatever goal it is while making it as easy as possible for them to do that. I think for me, there's some overlap between what user experience design is and design thinking. And so when we talk about user experience design, we're saying things like uh, give them what they want in the fewest number of steps. And that's a very broad and generic thing to say, but it's actually very revealing about a certain mindset. And and, and once I started developing websites and, and building apps for people, I had to take a whole different approach. I had to get inside the mind of the person who's going to use it, the consumer, the end user, whatever it is, and try to understand like what is it they're trying to accomplish and, and work through the flow and, and, and do that for them, mostly in a digital way. Uh, but that's my understanding of it. Eric, did I totally get that wrong?
0: No, no. Uh, I think that's a fair description, definition. I mean, because you're right. A lot of people will come up to me and say, oh, so you, it's like you do UX. I'm like, "Mm, that's part of it. But um, before I share my definition, what's your experience with design thinking? Um, I have a guess where I think you've had experience other than the website stuff, but Before I give my guess, I want to hear about your real world experience with design thinking.
1: Shoot. Now you're putting me on the spot
0: here. I kind of am, but it's okay. Okay.
1: I think uh, because I'm not sure my definition, how close it is to what you're talking about, because you're the you're the professional here. I I think about the things I've helped my clients accomplish. Uh, For example, one of our real estate developer clients, a multi-billion dollar corporation, they do commercial real estate. Uh, they do class A buildings. And so when we're trying to understand their end customer, who's making the decisions uh, in terms of leasing out these ginormous buildings, uh, we started to map out the user experience, the flow and started to solve some of the problems. And it it revealed a bunch of different, at least for me, kind of more innovative approaches to marketing real estate. Uh, When I think about it myself in terms of our future pro community, the members who make what we do possible, I'm obsessed with what I can do to serve them better. And so we're we're constantly evolving as a private paid group coaching community, like what we can do to help them succeed. And so uh, I would think that those roughly fit within the larger category of design thinking. Again, I don't know how far off I, uh, I am on this, Eric.
0: Look, Chris, I'm not trying to put you on the spot. The reason I, I asked that is so I know where you are at, where I can meet you at in terms of how to frame the definition. And you have a lot of the working parts there. So kudos. It very much is about understanding the user experience, the flow, and your obsession with your community is really a big part of it. And so do you know the adage, Chris, know your audience? I think I do. So that phrase is at the heart of design thinking. That's why when, if you, if anybody here looks up you know, Google's the definition of design thinking, you'll often see the term human-centric or human-centered. And you're not only putting people at the center of your work, but you're getting to know them as part of the process. And so that that's really key to understanding design thinking. So a, de- a definition I like to use is this, design thinking is both a human-centric mindset and a framework for solving problems, just like a designer. We can get into defining designer later, but a lot of people might say, well, Eric, how can it be both a mindset and a framework? So first let's talk about the mindset design thinking requires you to enter the workspace with your client in mind or customer, whichever C word that you like to use. So for example, let's say, Chris, you know, you're a graphic designer who specializes in, I don't know, marketing collateral. And you just got off the phone with your client and they need something with a quick turnover and a fairly conservative aesthetic. And at that moment, I'm, I'm using you, Chris, here. You think, you know, I, I've got this new layout that's pretty cool and I've been sitting on it for a while. I'm, I think I'm going to use that here. This is when you pause and say to yourself, am I doing this for me or the client? Mindset. Okay, mindset, I think we can kind of get our heads around that. But how do we actually do the work? So that's where the framework comes in. And design thinking provides you with repeatable methods for keeping your process, your creative process on track. Now, Chris, in all fairness, next to you, I might not be the most creative. But I do consider myself creative. And I work in the creative business world. I write. I produce visual communications but I am a subpar project manager, (laughs) full stop. You don't want to call me to manage your project, but managing your client's project is crucial to your success. We have to recognize that and what design thinking provides is a distinct set of methods that can make managing projects, both fun and simple. I want to give you one last twist to all of this design thinking asks you to invite your client into the process. By staying connected to your client at specific intervals, you can transform yourself from a designer to a trusted advisor. Now, I know you might be out there thinking, great, Eric, thanks for the platitude. And I suspect you're saying, there's no way I'm ever going to invite my client into the process. They're just going to micromanage me. Or you may say to yourself, yeah, right. They paid me to be creative, not them. Stop. That's the mindset again. Design thinking has very specific places throughout the design life cycle where clients will join and where they will not. And we are gonna talk about those places shortly. So again, mindset and framework. Chris, what do you think?
1: I like where this is going. And now that you've uh, shared your perspective and, and how you see this, I, I'm making a lot of connections and, and mapping my own journey as a creative professional, and and how I evolved, and I, I want to say this because there are probably a handful of creative people in the room, like traditionally trained graphic designer types, right? Where we went to school to to study the visual arts, and the perspective or the mindset of a person in a design program, as especially the one that I experienced, is it's a very solitary endeavor. We 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 don't work well with the with others, and we 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 see the brief. Sometimes we write the brief, sometimes we're given the brief, and then we go away and we come up with ideas and then we, 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 we present, there's a big presentation, and we show our, our clients the different ideas that we came up with in hopes that one of them is going to be celebrated and they're going to say, this is freaking amazing, you're a creative genius, no wonder we want to pay you this, and everything that we heard about you is true and, and you, you've delivered above and beyond, but as you know, this is not always the case. Oftentimes we'll present something and we're like so excited about it and then we're not seeing the reaction that we expect or hope for and the other person is looking very stoically at the work and we can see a little pain or consternation building up in their face like how do I tell this person they totally missed the boat and and this is what author Blair ends talks about the addiction to presentations that feeling that you have, the excitement, the energy level, how you're pumped up and the adrenaline is flowing and you think you're doing your best work and you show it to the client and it either rises to the moment or it falls hard and it's very emotionally painful for creative types to go through. And in my intro, I talked about my friend Jose Caballe, who introduced me to user experience design. And I have to say, I'm a little embarrassed to admit this. It was the first time that i really stopped thinking about myself what i wanted to do what my ideas were what my taste level was and i just had to understand and study the the user profiles we had to build user profiles and understand like what is it like to be them what is it like for them to manage their work life and their personal life and to see all the pain points and the challenges and then different frameworks that i learned all of a sudden, transform the way that works. I'm very excited to dig deeper with you, Eric. I just wanted to give some uh, creative context because I'm on the other side of that spectrum. Where uh, for a period of my life, I was a you know pure creative, visual artist.
0: That's a great share. Now, for some of you, uh, what I'm about to say, if you're not familiar, there's there is a I don't is it do you guys call it a product or a resource core? Jose's core it's a framework
1: it's a product but yeah
0: yeah so uh, I'm just gonna say it's something a little controversial like design thinking is a foundation of core meaning the two or three methods that I saw in core come from the heart of design thinking so um if some of you out there who are familiar with it that can help maybe ground the conversation a little bit but I'll get into some more specifics later but to, to relate it back to Chris's story um, I've seen some of the videos with you and and Jose in the room and Jose is just, he's commanding the room with the workshop. And I, I, I must admit, Chris, I could see you were kind of, I don't want to say stilted, but you seemed like a little fish out of water. Is that a fair assessment?
1: That is more than fair, my friend.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and the reason I point that out is because not to to make fun of you, but like, That's a common reaction for most of um, my students that I work with or people who I'm trying to um, get through the process. Even creative types such as yourself are like, hey, Eric, I kind of do this already. Why are like why are we wasting time on this? So I want to hold that thought and just say thank you, Chris, for sharing that, because that's a very common initial reaction to it. So let's actually talk about the framework we're going to get real here, and I don't don't mean that in sort of a controversial sense of the word, but arguably design thinking got its start in the 1950s from a MIT professor by the name of John Arnold. And what he was recognizing as a um, engineering professional, uh, or professor rather, his students were just building to build. And what they built, it was great, but it was only built for an engineer like the bolts were sticking out and you had to use certain tools to even use the thing that they built. And he proposed that I'm going to come up with a fictitious character called Methanians, which is short for creatures built out of methane. And they're kind of like these bird-like creatures with three eyes, but they, they love being sold to. So create a product for them. And the, his point was getting the engineers out of the way of being engineers and trying to make something for something else. That's not them. And even though there's no such creature as a methanian, um, the point was still there that even because we're humans, we often can miss the mark, building something, creating something for another human. So this exercise spanned out, you know, decades later went to Stanford and Stanford has a D school of design where that the sort of framework of design thinking was born. If you Google design thinking Stanford, you're probably gonna see five or six hexagons in, in succession, empathize, decide, ideate, prototype, and test. Well, for me, I, I just I feel like it's, it's a lot, it's overwhelming. I appreciate the framework. I totally respect all the people that have come before me. I stand on the shoulders of those giants but I needed to break that model down a little bit further. So those hexagons can get kind of clunky and they kind of lose their meaning. So I've created what's called the real world model and it's only four things. Number one, you have to see the world. That is really about empathizing with your end user, your customer. Even if you're not building the next iPhone, When that phone call comes in, hey, Chris, I want to work with you. And Chris, you're a very good proponent of just slowing down and listening, but truly empathizing. Oh, why do you need that website? Hmm, are you sure? Do you really want to spend that amount of money with me? Okay, tell me more. Why are you struggling? Really getting inside the mind of your customer. But what design thinking asks you to do is really immerse yourself once you take on that client. You can interview them. You could do what I like to call fly on the wall uh, observation, which is pretending to be a fly, not interrupting your client, watching what they do. What are the things they click or interact with? Who do they talk with? So that's seeing the world. Once you see the world, you've got all these observations. Now you have to understand it. What the heck did I just see? So this is part of the decide and ideate portion of the Stanford model. How do I start to narrow down all these observations? You're deciding, you're synthesizing, you're paring down whatever the language you want to use there. But you're starting to get to a point where you're coming up with ideas. You're not quite making anything yet, although you know, use a sticky note, scribble it on a whiteboard, whatever gets the idea out, it's a great way. And there's a couple of methods that I'm going to share with you later on what, what you can do here with design thinking. Okay, Chris, so we see the world. Now we start to understand it. And it's these two steps that are so critical. Don't just jump to being like, ah, I know how to fix that website. Boy, uh, company X, um, I'll use your commercial real estate. Ah, gosh, their website really sucks. I'm going to propose doing a website. But they, do, they don't really need that. So you want to stop and truly understand what their problem is. And Chris, if I recall correctly, it was more about understanding a user experience versus just another website. So those are critical. See the world, understand it, great. Now that you understand it, here's the fun part. You make for the world. See the world, understand, now make for the world. This gets into prototyping and testing. Now, for some of us, that term prototyping might, doesn't fit because you might be just a graphic designer. I don't like build these little you know, physical objects, but that's okay. Like I think of a logo designer, graphic designer who has multiple iterations of the logo. First, it's a circle. Maybe then it has a triangle cut out. Nope. Maybe it's a circle plus the triangle plus a rectangle. Oh, well, maybe it's a cutout. Maybe it's black on white and white on black and all these different iterations. That's a prototype. And when you really lean into design thinking, you show that to the client in its most unfinished form much like what chris was saying don't wait for the reveal don't pull this big cover over a big poster board and go ta-da no bring them into the process and go all right customer what do you think I'm, i'm i'm kind of feeling these three to four different logo designs and then you test it with them and there's a great set of methods in there to do this in a way in which you're not overwhelmed and you're not doing a ton of revisions. Um, much of what Chris you know, advocates for, like don't go into revision hell. All right, lastly, you've seen the world, you understand it, you've made something for it, now you have to tell the world your story. This is essentially marketing or pitching your work. Yes, your client has been probably with you through the whole process, But at the end, when you're finished, you have to pitch it. You have to remind them not only of the design decisions they made, but you're reminding them why they hired you. That passion, that pitch, that storytelling you're giving them about the thing that you've created, you're basically becoming their advisor. They're believing in you. And they're also being able to take that same story and pitch it to their customers in a way you're training them to be kind of like you in getting people excited about the end product. And so I'm gonna stop there and give you a couple of use cases, but Chris, I know that's a lot to unpack. So good time to pause.
1: Actually, the way you've explained it is super clear and I'm enjoying it. Uh, one thing I needed to ask you about because I was uh, I did do a Google search on design thinking Stanford framework and there seemed to be a lot more steps, but one thing that sounded different than what you're saying, and maybe you've uh, you've modified it, uh, but where where they start with notice, empathize, it says define, you say decide, is it supposed to be decide or define, or is that just a, a Freudian slip kind of thing?
0: Uh, it might have been a m- mix up on mine, but yeah, it's okay. define. Okay, beautiful. Actually. All right. Perfect. I just want to
1: clarify in case some people are looking that up and finding a little disconnect there. You know, I, I just want to quickly relate something here because design thinking uh, for some people is a buzzword. And, and for a while there, really large corporations were buying up smaller design firms that had just the word design thinking somewhere on their website. And so if you wanted to be purchased by IBM or something, you just start to change your company and use that language. But there's a lot simpler way of understanding this uh, for, for people who may have worked in the uh, motion design or commercial production industry. What we talk about a lot is we start with a very kind of onion skin process where we peel back layer at a time until we get to the core. And the core is the finished commercial or film that you're making. And you start off with a, a script, written words, that then get translated into storyboards. And the storyboards become an animatic, which is a really crude version, the prototype, if you will. The, the cheapest and ugliest version of the finished thing timed out, maybe to music and sound design. And then the rest of the process is a continuation of refinement. And now something that I'm a big advocate for is if you involve your clients early and often, you're doing some really good things for yourself. Number one is you're, uh, you're empowering them and you're incorporating them so they feel engaged and part of the creative process. So they have as much ownership of the outcome as you do. And it's nice to do that. It's a good human thing to do uh, versus building a wall between you and your client. And we have to just get over this concept that we must work in secrecy because people will judge us poorly for half-finished ideas. But what you're doing is you're alleviating the anxiety that your clients and customers feel because they're waiting, tapping on the table for weeks on end without knowing where it's going. Their biggest fear is you're going to show them something that they just don't like, and now they've lost something. They've lost valuable time, and potentially you're going to have to start over. We also know that it's cheaper to fix a problem when you can identify it early imagine finishing a complete commercial production or music video and your client says i hate this this is terrible this is nothing at all like what we talked about and and so as a creative professional whether you're a freelancer independent uh, business owner or you run a 50-person agency if you can start to let go of your guard around the old idea of holding on to the work without involving your client uh, you're going to continue to be stuck in this way and you're going to pay for it in terms of revisions, uh, the, the dreaded late cycle revisions at the 11th hour. Okay, having said that, Eric, I'm going to turn it back over to you.
0: No, that's great. I appreciate you sharing. Um, it it reminds me of, um, I don't know if it's a quote, but it was something Matthew Cena had written in the pitch kit, which was creative ideas can be tough to sell. You're trying to convince someone of something that doesn't exist yet. So I think design thinking says, okay, well, how do I make them feel less uncomfortable that this thing we're going to birth into existence um, isn't just magic, you know, and and it's a, it's a way to prove what value you bring even before the thing is created. And so I, um, that's really what you were sort of bringing out in me, Chris, in, in that statement. So I just wanted to relate that to Matthew's quote. So see the world understand the world make something for the world story tell to the world i'm just going to share a couple of methods in here just I, I want to make it just a little bit more tangible and then i want to share some stories seeing the world is really all that research empathizing at a deep level um it's based in ethnographic research and that's you know it's a fancy word for saying you're going to write about people you're going to study them um, I've spent many years trying to understand ethnographic research, and it's it's a, a labor of love. But I know a lot of designers out there, like, uh, dude, I got to work fast. <laughs> I don't know how much time I'm going to be able to spend with people. So one simple technique, one method, which isn't necessarily um, you know unique to design thinking, which is interviewing. Um, interviewing is a very quick and efficient way of getting to the heart of your client's problem. Here's the thing. Don't just interview one person. Talk to your client and say, okay, I'm pretend you're you're my client, Chris. Chris, thank you for sharing. Who else should I be talking to? Who will, I don't know, this collateral that we're building, who should have a say in it? And then understanding how best to interview them. I'm not gonna go into the different interviewing techniques and styles, um, but that's one way you can do that at scale. And plus, we've got so many tools out there, um, I think like Otter and Scribed and all these transcription services. Of course, with the permission of the interviewee, just have a conversation with them and let the the closed caption or the captioning um, system get the, the context um, or the capture the words from the interview. I find I get a lot more richer engagement when I'm just having eye contact. My other favorite part of seeing the world is the fly on the wall, where you just sit and observe, obviously, again, with permission. You know, you don't want to be that weirdo sitting in the corner like, who's that person <laughs> scribbling furiously about everything I'm doing? Um, It's a great way to be able to do that and social distance as well, you know, for some that's still a concern. And so these are really two good ways to get started, you know, both from a completely remote situation and and one from, you know, being in person. There's ways to do this in remote. Um, I go into much more detail in a in a different call. But for now, you get the idea. Now, so you've gone and done this, all this research. Here's some methods to help you start to winnow down or synthesize. I love this technique. It's called Rose Thorn Bud. Now, if any of you follow me, you know I'm probably a broken record when I talk about it. But it is such a simple and elegant method unique to this design thinking world in terms of looking at your observations and giving them categories. So one way i might do this like chris you were describing the commercial real estate um uh client you know they maybe they want you to sort of do the whole environmental graphics package well what i might do is go and actually walk the space take images you know photographs what do i what does it look like at night what does it look like midday when the sun's up high then I come back and I look at these images, and rose thorn bud is really just a, meta, a metaphor for what did I like, what I didn't like, and what are, where do I see opportunity? So rose is all the pretty parts, all the things I liked. Thorn, like right? they're prickly, Ugh, I didn't. I was turned off by them. And bud, um, is something's about to bloom, but I'm not quite sure yet. So I write these down on sticky notes, or I post them on a virtual whiteboard like Miro. And it's just a way to kind of get it out of my brain. And then when you step back, it works like a beautiful heat map. You start to see where all these interesting opportunities or challenges are. Why is that important, you say? Because then you can start to narrow down on the problem and you you can start to prioritize where to start. A lot of newcomers to design thinking are like, oh my goodness, I just got a ton of observations we've got a lot of problems where do i even start so rose thorn bud is a great way to do that
1: okay rose thorn bud i've heard you say this before I, i i love the metaphor it makes total sense rose is the things that you like thorn is the things that you don't like and bud is the budding opportunities that are yet to blossom and so we're looking
0: out for those things um, yeah, so the second method after that is uh, affinity clusters or clusters or themes, you might have heard. But essentially, it's then taking all those roses, those thorns and buds, and putting them in in buckets or clusters that are they have affinity, meaning they're they're similar in scope, or they're similar in their challenge. And I find these just highly uh, approachable. When I these were the two methods I really glommed onto when I approached design thinking. And they're, they're not like a mind map. It's not like drawing these circles and expanding and expanding. It's the opposite. It does use circles or clusters, if you will. But the, the, the goal is to winnow down, pare down. And if you're doing this with a team member, it's a great way to see if, you, if the two of you or how many in your group are saying the same thing. And the beautiful byproduct of that, Chris, is it builds consensus. You could say, oh, we, whoa, Chris, you and I, we saw that too. We saw the same thing. Great. Then when it comes to actually deciding on what to work on, you're not going to sit there and fight and argue. Like I've seen a lot of creative teams do. They're like, no, we need to go for the call to action button here. And they're like, and the other person says, no, I think we need to have lots more white space. And then it's this whole back and forth about the, where they should start first. So there's a lot more going on than just doing the work of observing and synthesizing your data. There's a lot of team building in there, and it's a wonderful byproduct. Okay, let's get to two others, and then we'll jump into some stories. All right, so the prototyping, I think Chris has made a wonderful case for this, is, you know, and using Blair anns position that, hey, don't wait to the end to do this big reveal or the presentation. Start prototyping, sharing off your iterations. I'll give a personal example. I was asked two weeks ago to put together a pitch deck. Um, You know, these people uh, asked me to, you know, sort of lean into the storytelling piece and um, maybe punch up some of the visuals. Uh, Oh, okay, (laughs) great. But I forewarned them. I said, I'm probably going to annoy you because I'm going to ask you is this going to work? Do you like this? And what I'm doing here is I'm not trying to annoy them, but I'm trying to understand what frequency do they want to be involved in? And it was great. Um, My client said, this, this is what I needed because the last designer I worked with, the last copywriter I worked with, they would disappear. They're like in their secret lab. And then when they pop up and I didn't like what they presented, They got offended. You could feel the defensiveness in their voice. And they said, We really appreciate you being a little bit more open to it. And so um, prototypes can be copywriting, you know, it could be just a clunky little paragraph put up in front of them. And, you know, for us as creatives, we're like our hardest critics. I thought I wrote some pure dribble, something pretty basic, put it up in front of the client, and they're like, Oh my gosh, you're a genius. And so I have to laugh, and it keeps me humble. But at the same time, it's it's proving the process is working, showing a prototype. No matter what creative field you're in, has been helpful. The other thing that I do there is I I do what I call a test, uh, think aloud testing. It's like putting your brain on speakerphone. So if it's a website, Chris, I might I might come to you and say, okay, Chris, here's just a, some wireframes. I'm not going to even tell you what to do. Go, just Play with it. And Chris it, might say, uh, well, what am I supposed to do? And I'll say, I, I can't tell you. The point of it is is you want to see how the, the individual user reacts to your initial design. And if it requires so much explanation, it's probably a good sign you're not created something, in this case, that's user friendly. So that's, that's think aloud testing. And that can be done with anything like copywriting, I'll say to Chris like, hey, I just wrote this body of copy for, you know, the hero section of the website, just read it out loud. Chris reads it out loud and he's like, Eric, that's horrible. Like that just sounds clunky. I'm like, great, all good. Now I know, let's keep going. And then lastly, a final method I'd share with you is when you're going to pitch, when you're going to do your storytelling, it's called cover story or it it's like pretending that your product or your final thing is going to show up on a magazine and maybe it's the new yorker or it's time magazine name your favorite publication but what you're doing here is you're trying to instill into the client hey like this thing we're doing could be pretty prosperous for you and some people call it future escaping or seeing into the future what does it look like what does success look like and it's um You know, it's not something foreign to the graphic designer, creative community. Um, Chris, I know you do like, uh, like your team does a lot of mock-ups, like what would this thing look like if it it was a physical book or if it was a poster? This is very much in the same spirit. So there, those are the, some of the key methods that I use frequently
2: in design thinking. Time for a quick break, but we'll be right back Welcome back to our conversation. Let's tell a
0: story of design thinking in the real world. So Chris is right. There's been a lot of, I don't know what the if it's in the zeitgeist or the buzzwordy, but um, there's a reason why corporations or major companies have adopted design thinking, because frankly, it just works. Now, I have my opinions on how people make it work in these corporations that I don't agree with but there is one standout organization that I absolutely adore and talk about a lot. It's PepsiCo. Now the former PepsiCo CEO, Indra Nui, um, arguably one of the best performing CEOs for PepsiCo actually put design thinking to use in her company. Um, You know, the, the, the board was totally against it. You know, they, I don't know if this is entirely hewed in the story, but I mean, she was, I think, one of the first women CEOs. So there was a little uneasiness about, you know, her coming in and using, you know, uh, this sort of buzzwordy term. But what she knew at that time, there was this growing desire of customers to be able to connect to brands with purpose. Now, I know that's, I mean, if we you spend enough time on either LinkedIn or Instagram, that's all brands talk about. We have this purpose, we have this mission and they kind of, that purpose is more about at a um, human level versus, hey, we're on this mission to make a ton of dough. You know, I think, uh, I I think it's um, Whole Foods has like we we have this purpose to have people eat healthier. I'm I'm maybe butchering it, but it's more leaning into a a human purpose than that of like, oh, we make better products than the other guy. And so uh, at that time, that wasn't quite in the zeitgeist. It wasn't really popular. And so Indra hired a pretty renowned designer by the name of Mauro Puccini to help her in this design thinking uh, effort and what they were finding is like well what the heck is our purpose like we make junk food let's just be honest and so using some of the design th- thinking techniques they wanted to see the world what is this world of people who use Pepsi type products you know because they had chips and and other soft drinks and things you know they make doritos but what they found is the purpose is like yeah it cool, you make junk food, but we want healthy food too. So PepsiCo came up with the purpose of having healthier products. And um, part of the process, Indra came up with, and this is a quote from her Harvard Business Review article. You can see it online for free. She said, we wanted to make a portfolio of products that had fun for you food and some which were good for you. Now, i don't know i might be a little sucker for those types of uh, platitudes but it helped really condense down that hey we're not getting rid of who we are as sort of this you know fun for you food but we're also going to give you some good stuff and it wouldn't have been without the design thinking process that they got there so they were able to um i think they acquired quaker oats Tropicana, they made, you know, lighter sugary, less sugary juices, naked juice. Izzy was another one. They were reducing their salt and sugar and fat in their core products. And she and Mauro really attribute using the design thinking methods to ask the right questions of their customers. And what they found is people didn't want more multiple flavors of Doritos. They wanted these healthier products. So, Chris, were you familiar with that story?
1: No, I wasn't. And I know Mauro, so this is really cool to hear. And I I also am a sucker for, like, good copywriting. So they took the word junk food and just turned that into fun for you. I'm like, okay, I accept that. And then we'll also make some things that are actually good for you. And you can tell that that is probably the the culmination of a lot of work, thinking and processing and synthesizing so that you could distill it down to something super simple and memorable and repeatable. And that's really important in terms of the storytelling part of it. So a lot of you, as you're working on your messaging and your positioning, you'll use too many words. And an exercise I do with anybody I'm working with, I'll just tell them, cut down the words by half. And you have to make some hard decisions. And then eventually you you boil it down to its essence. So fun for you, good for you. I like that. Nice story,
0: Eric. It's so great. I love it. Now, I think the challenge here, Chris, is, you know, if I was in the audience and I heard this story, it's like, yeah, well, thanks, Eric. But where's all the design thinking? So unfortunately, um, I wasn't there in the room. So I don't know what particular methods they um, employed. Uh, but I thought it was a really solid story. Um, you know, it proved to, like, they became very profitable because of this. I don't know the exact numbers, but, you know, the board members completely, (laughs) if I were in the room, I bet they shut up and were like, okay, good job, (laughs) Indra. So, um, and Mauro, keep it going. But I can share a personal story and give you some idea of where this fits in the real world. Um, I had a client uh, a few years back before the pandemic so we were able to do a lot of the work you know in the physical space uh, It was a, a pretty major SaaS or you know cloud-based uh, company that really made a big mark in automation particularly like in hr and it um support services so think like if you know if you work for a company and you you have to submit for um, taking time off for holiday or a vacation they created software that makes that really super easy and automated. Well, in 2019, they asked me to come help with like a sales strategy. I'm thinking, well, hmm, I'm not really known for my sales strategy, but okay. Like we can get to how that came about later, but what they were experiencing was some exponential growth, like 10 X. And arguably that's not a, that's not a bad problem to have. Like growing is great. They were making a lot of money, but the sales team was getting like burnt out right? because they're just like, they couldn't scale fast enough. They couldn't onboard new employees. And so what was happening is the, the like sellers, people should be out there connecting with their customers. Uh, they were managing all the administrative tasks. So think like SOWs and terms and conditions and, and, data entry. And I want to be clear, it wasn't like the sales team was above that. It wasn't like, oh, well, we're the sales people. We can't do that stuff. No, it it was just that they were not staying connected to the customers. I mean, that's their goal is to keep going out there, making the money and getting more um, customers. And it also created challenges for connecting to new prospects who like they just, they were banging down the door. They wanted this product line. They just what are you going to do? I can't, like, I totally want to take your money, customer, but I can't onboard you correctly. So by the time I was brought in, the team, Chris, you know this. I think if anybody follows Blair ends knows this, they came in self-diagnosed. Oh, we know what the problem is, Eric. You just need to help us install a new CRM platform. Oh. <laughs> if If a number of you have never had to do a big enterprise install, your count, your lucky stars. Cause it is a bear. It's a beast. It can take a long time and there's a whole process. And I just, it, whether it was pure arrogance or naivete, I was like, guys, I don't feel this is right. And it, in hindsight, it was really my design thinking training. I, I said, look, I don't think this is really your problem. I think software might help, but then I proposed we do, um, a weeks-long design thinking set of workshops. It doesn't mean we're all in the room all day, but we brought in people from their global community, different sellers, their administrative people, project managers, executives. And we got into a workshop and I said, all right, Rose Bud, what's working, what's not, where do you see opportunities? And at the end of the week, everybody was pretty much saying the same thing. Please do not install another piece of software. <laughs> and so uh, that was a huge win. Just by doing that alone, just pausing, even getting the executives to say that. And I'll fast forward here. We did a lot of other methods, all the things I shared with you. Hearing their voices, at the end of the day, we created a prototype. And we, I asked everybody to create these little prototypes out of paper, like sticky notes, anything we had in the room, scissors, tape, We didn't have to do anything. I had a group of uh, people create a, they said, well, what if we did like a little app to track our, you know, administrative stuff and they use sticky notes on their phone and each sticky note, as you pull it off, emulated a different screen. And so it was fun to see them, you know, sort of go through these exercises. Look at the end of the day, I had, I had to do some work. I told them, I said, I don't think you need another piece of software. You do automation already. Why don't you create a crowdsource platform to work with other administrative staff in different parts of the world? They're like, what, what do you mean? I said, well, all your West Coast sellers are only depending on your West Coast administrative staff. You know, the people who can do like the T's and C's and the SOWs. So why are they only depending on them? Oh, well, Eric, they only trust them. Like, yeah, but you've got people in Australia who aren't busy. Why don't you create an automation process where they put in these, you know, sales requests, and while they go to bed at night on the West Coast, on Australian time, they're just going through checking the basic administrative needs, and in the morning, it'll be there in their, their email, and the sale will have been completed, and they loved it. Like that was, they were already doing automation. So I was able to help them at the end of the day, not only think creatively about it using design thinking, but here's the real business value. I saved them $8 million in software licenses. Now the software people probably were mad at me, but my point is, is that um, there's real business value there in just slowing down and taking the creative process like design thinking and reframing the problem.
1: You should have done uh, value-based pricing on that one. (laughs)
0: I can't talk about the details, but you're pretty close.
1: (laughs) (laughs) If you save somebody $8 million, you should get a piece of that. And so we're seeing it applied in the real world where you can actually improve the business function. And so then design thinking extends way beyond like just thinking about a visual problem. You can just, you can design and solve for business problems. And I love that because it is an empowering thing for creative types of people to be able to work on more than just the visual aspects. It's one of the biggest pain points that people have that we tend to get regulated, relegated uh, to just doing the things that seem to be superficial in terms of how it might impact a business. So for those of you that have an appetite for getting into the business function, uh, Eric, you mentioned earlier about going from being a designer to being a trusted advisor. And, and that's why design thinking is so valuable to businesses. I have a question here from my friend, Anneli, like how can you uh, validate uh, the tests of the prototypes? So, like what is your method to validate the tests?
0: Yeah, there's a few that you can do, but ultimately one of the biggest ones I, I lean on is system usability scale. I know it sounds super dirty, but it's been around since like 1992. There was a, uh, I forget the gentleman's name that created it, but he worked for a, like an old school IBM spin-off. And it's basically 10 questions. And it, it asks, can you use this product? Is it hard to use? Do you need to be taught more? You know, there's, it's 10 questions. I don't, I can't rattle off all 10 of them. And if you score higher than 66, um, you've got something that's viable. And so to me, that's a great way to quantify, you know, some viability or if it's working. The other one is the think aloud testing. If I see someone really struggling to use a design or try to describe it, then I make note of that. And that's when I go back and say, okay, we got to do this again. I hope that helps, Annalie. Let's
1: continue. Where else are we going to take this?
0: That is it, frankly. Um, I'm going to, I have a, a short PDF of the two methods and and how to use them if you go to my website which is the design at the bottom there's a resource uh, for design thinking um, feel free download it no obligation you don't need your email i really want you to put this to use today rose thorn bud, you could use this with your family now i don't know if you have teenagers chris i know you do i'm actually going to a graduation today for my youngest um so I wanted to say congratulations on your son's graduation. Thank you. Uh, That's awesome. Uh, Although my youngest is graduating preschool. (laughs) (laughs) A little difference there. Yeah. Big day in the Moore household. Um, No, but uh, I do have an older daughter. She's 21. And when she was in her teenage years, it's very difficult to speak with. Um, She just didn't want to talk. And I get it. You know, she wanted to talk to her old man. I used to use Rose Thorn Bud with her. And say, just what was great for you today? What was challenging? And where do you see opportunities? And it it was so great. We could do that at the dinner table. You don't have to use sticky notes. I'd just be like, all right, RTB me, or, you know, Rose, Thorn Bud. She's like, oh, well, you know, so-and-so talked to me, and they were really sweet. And then, oh, Mr. Johansson gave me really crappy homework. So that was my thorn. And Bud, like, um, I think I can finish the homework before, eight o'clock tonight. And then I can watch my favorite YouTube star, Chris Doe.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so you didn't whiteboard that whole thing and diagram it out at the dinner table. That'd be no. really nerdy, Eric, if you did that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be too yeah. much. Yeah. And that's when she rolls her eyes and just like, Oh, dad, LOL, you know, and and does a TikTok about you.
0: Yeah. Oh, she probably would. Yeah. She probably would. So how do people get this resource again? Again, it's dot org, And you scroll down to the bottom near the footer. There's a link for the design thinking resource.
1: And when Eric says it's the gift, it, it means that you don't have to put in your email address or anything, right? It's not one of these funnel things, or is it? No. Nope. And, you know, when you say gift, people always like, because we've heard that and it's just a way of saying hey welcome to my funnel yeah and this is not the case not the case at all okay traditionally speaking we haven't had too much opportunity to bring people up on stage to ask questions or contribute to the conversation so let's do that for right now nathan welcome to the stage go ahead and meet yourself and ask your question uh to eric
3: hey thank you for bringing me up here when it comes to like different types of design thinking curriculum and sorts of like i guess methodologies like um what are the resources you've had that you've sort of come across that you find most impactful that uh really narrow things down in addition to like rosebud thorn or things that you've uh, like frameworks yeah
0: uh, i do, i also believe in systems thinking which is a whole nother ball of wax uh in terms of a framework and really at the end of the day uh the best way to describe it is think of a bathtub filling it with water um and uh, you you have to have uh, a stock like in that system, which means the water is the stock, you need to have flows, which of course is the spigot. Uh, and then you need to also think about the the spout or sorry the the drain, that's also a flow. And you want to keep that water at a certain level and you also want to keep it warm. And so system thinking asks you to be mindful of okay, how much water do I bring in? How do I control the temperature? And how do I keep it at a certain level? And uh, that's been very helpful for me because they, it introduces this concept of feedback loops. And feedback loops is a type of framework where you're listening and you're receiving messages about, up oh, the, the tub's getting too, it's gonna overflow. We need to open the drain. Oh, the, the water's getting too cold. We need to up the temperature so that's that's a pretty um you know sort of hard visual to think about but i the feedback loops is what's helped me in working with clients and and getting messages out there is like okay well we can create this beautiful message but at some point someone's going to tell me it's terrible so i have to be mindful of those feedback loops i'll stop there nathan and see if that resonates
3: yeah it does you know it's like um uh, like the different ways of thinking of like the things that give people the most feedback like j- like just kind of like you were kind of able to pick up from that kind of kernel from what I was talking about. So like it really goes to show like how useful the I guess the methodology is for you to like really find where things sort of connect. So thank you for that.
1: Hey, Nathan, I have one framework for you that I think you'll really, really like. I learned it from one of my friends that works in product design. And here's what she said. Task gap and opportunity. And it's a great way for you to get your toes uh, into the whole looking at it from a user centric point of view. So the task is the jobs that they have to get done at work and at home. And so you would make a list of that, right? So you would start at the beginning of the day and let's say it's a it's a busy um, uh, mom who's running a corporation. And so you're like, okay, what what does she have to do? And you would just list it out. Get, get kids to school, uh, get to work, manage a team and write a report or do a presentation. And you would just write all the tasks that she has to get done that day on a typical day. And then you look for the gap where there, there may be some points of friction. And so each one of the tasks, like, okay, getting the kids off to school on time, uh, getting the kids up, uh, preparing meal, whatever, and you would just write all the, the gaps, the points of friction. And then from your design user-centric mindset, you were like, how do I improve or ease uh, the, the pain of each one of these tasks that are important to us as a company or organization? Now you won't be able to solve all the problems, so you prioritize the ones that you think your company is best suited to solve. And oftentimes that is a great way to generate new business concepts, new marketing concepts, whatever it is, because what we do is we pay for transformation. So if you're able to help people solve a specific problem, make their life easier, you win, they win, the company wins. I hope that is helpful to you. Task, gap, opportunity.
3: Thanks, appreciate that. You're very welcome.
1: Okay. Um, I have another question from our mutual friend, Annalie Hansen who's asking this question. Like, what do you see is the biggest difference between what your methodology is and design sprints? Or is there some overlap? Is design sprints built on design thinking? She so just wanted to hear what the difference was between the two.
0: Yeah, I get this question frequently. Mm-hmm. Um, so short answer for me is design thinking is the foundation and design sprints is a spinoff of it. Um, design sprints, for those of you who don't know, is typically it's a form of design thinking, like sets of workshops, but it's done very, very rapidly. So think for maybe five days. Um, the distinction I would make is that uh, in design sprints, it's usually pretty clear what the problem is you're trying to solve for. So in the book Sprint from Jake Knapp, they, they have this... Um, uh, sprint about a robot delivering a toothbrush to a, a a person staying in the hotel. You know, so the 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 guest forgot their toothbrush, they send a request, and well, and this robot delivers the um, the toothbrush. So to me, what that is is uh, more or less validating a solution you already have, and I think it, it's it's valuable to do that. What design thinking says is what are you going to do if you don't know what the problem is? What, if, what are you going to do? You, you should not shoehorn a solution at the beginning and then use design thinking to validate it. Design thinking asks you to take a few steps back and go, well, Chris, you just came to me and asked you to build a website. Great, let's go build a website. Well, there's a lot of conversation and stakeholder buy-in to say, Chris, uh, no, hold on. We don't really need a website. We have a problem with marketing, <laughs> you know, and so that—that's where I would make the distinction between those two.
1: Okay, wonderful. Thank you very much, Dana. Have you been able to move yourself into a, a more?
3: Uh, is this better? a little bit uh thank you thank you thank you uh the question that i wanted to ask is eric do you mentor people have you and how do you see that relationship like you know someone approached you about it basically thank you
1: thank you diana
0: yes Uh, i get energized by mentoring people um especially uh, when they when that light switch goes off chris like i'm sure you've seen it where they're like oh, this is how you do it? Or this is what it means to actually get paid for You know, when you teach people how to slow down the conversation and get them out of their self-diagnosis. Um, one of my favorite uh, mentees, uh, Jennifer Glover, um, was an early early student of mine. And she just got so excited that she went off and just got a job doing design thinking at a, a big company. And she reminds me every day that, you know, that I've inspired her and it's those things that I look for. So yes, long story short, I do enjoy mentoring.
4: Thank you.
1: OK, thank you, Diana. All right, we're going to move this over to Eric. And Eric, you have the distinction of being our our, less, uh, our last person to be able to, to give some input or ask your question. So please, just if you have a question, start with your question, Eric.
4: OK, yeah, thank you very much. Um, So I've gone through the Design Thinkers Academy um, a couple of years back in uh, Amsterdam and um, wanted to know, are you uh, utilizing like the double diamond uh, methodology and, you know, user journey, stakeholder mapping, all those type of methodologies in your uh, process and framework?
0: Yeah. Um, Before I answer that, how was your experience there, Eric? It
4: was... uh, fast paced um yeah. uh drinking from uh just absorbing from a fire hose
0: <laughs> but it was you're, good you're still alive to tell the tale
4: <laughs> yeah <laughs> um exactly
0: great question eric yes and uh i do uh use the double diamond and for those of you who aren't aware it's uh, from the design council out of the uk and um an organization that typically works with um the government in the uk to help you you know and help use design to solve interesting social and economic problems and what the double diamond uh, essentially says is it's literally two diamonds drawn side by side not, not diamonds you put in your a ring um but that the the various points on either side, you're, you're either diverging in your thinking or you're converging. That's you know sort of the, go out and do a bunch of research and then, okay, now make sense of that research. And then the second diamond is, all right, look, go out and do a bunch of prototypes and then now come narrow down to one. And so that's for the audience, if you're not familiar, that's what Eric's talking about. I use that more or less as a way of holding a discussion around design thinking here, hey, Hey, team, here's what we're going to do. Come up with a bunch of ideas. Don't tamp them down. They're not bad ideas. Just kind of get them out there. And then we'll 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 diamond down into um, what we think it is. Now, to your second part, Eric, uh, I think it was customer journeys. Um, yes, uh, when it makes sense. Um, sometimes I use the term experience mapping because um, I think customer journeys has a, a little bit of a different flavor to it, meaning you're, you're focusing on a specific set of interactions that they're doing. I, I like the methods of experience mapping because they ask you to not only look at the journey, but like, how are they feeling? What time of day was it? Uh, what things were they interacting with? And I'm, I think customer mapping can do that. I just haven't quite seen it framed up that way. But does that answer your question, Eric?
4: Uh, yes, it does then the other thing is uh there's this you know i come i've done some workshops before and you know before you get into the double diamond well the double diamond is to get to that problem statement right but then sometimes you may have like a number of challenges or opportunities and and our challenge is trying to figure out the right one to (laughs) to go for if that makes sense
0: so what's the question uh, of how i use the double diamond or
4: yeah, yeah, or or being able to—it's kind of like starting from somewhere. It's like like you mentioned with the design sprint—you kind of know what the problem is to a certain extent or the challenge is. Uh, but sometimes you, there may be a challenge to get to that problem, um, and I didn't know if that's so. If there's a way that you kind of work through that to go from a challenge to that particular problem statement.
0: Yeah. So, again, just. Just to give people some context, the the double diamond, the first diamond is what they call the problem space. And then the second one, correct me if I'm wrong, Eric, it's, it's sort of like the creation space. It's the solving space. So what I think I hear you say, Eric, is at that very beginning, the very tip, the left tip of that diamond, the very pointy part, that assumes you know what the problem is. And what I think I hear you asking is, well, how did you get to know what the problem is? Is that correct? It's
4: one of those things where, you know, organization or company may have, let's say, multiple challenges Mm -hmm. um, or opportunities. And in a way, you kind of need to narrow it down. And I know there's this organization called, I think it's uh, AJ AJ and Smart or something like that. And they kind of have this lightning decision jam. And I didn't know if there's something in addition to just doing a lightning decision jam to narrow down that challenge to get to that to start the design thinking process, or if there's other ways of being able to do that.
0: I see. I have a method I like to use. uh, It's called ID matrix or impact difficulty matrix. And essentially I won't go too deep into it, but essentially you pick those, you know, anywhere from three to 10 challenges. Like you're talking about an organization probably has lots of challenges, but I say limit it to 10 and then you map out like what's low hanging fruit, what has high ROI, What's gonna be more strategic, meaning what's gonna take more long-term in terms of solving it? And then what's pure luxury? Like, yeah, that's a nice to have, it's a challenge, but I don't think we need to solve for it right now. That's a method I use frequently to get, like particularly executives, because every challenge is their baby and they feel like they have to solve for it. I put this little matrix up and I say, decide, we're not leaving this room until we decide. So then they understand of these ten, which go first, which go second, you know, which go last.
4: Great, great, thanks. That that does validate my 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 thinking. Thank you. You're welcome.
1: All right, uh, it got a little nerdy there, Eric, and I appreciate <laughs> that the two Eric's got super. <laughs> Sorry, man. No, no, no need to apologize. Like Chris
0: is only calling me <laughs> out.
1: User journey mapping, double diamond, uh, <laughs> impact okay, effort Chris graph, letting, I love
0: it. And you know. Breathing and margins. I, I don't know. I'm losing all my typography. <laughs> but you get there too, brother.
1: <laughs> all right. I know. I know. I'm I just, uh, what is it? Nerd recognizes nerd. Uh, and that's yeah, what we're going to do. Okay. It's, it's um, okay. On behalf of Eric, uh, I just want to thank everybody for tuning in today. Um, so if you've enjoyed the, this conversation there's a couple things I'm going to ask you to do one is first uh, give Eric Moore a follow and um, and anybody else that you've enjoyed like if you geeked out with Eric Tubbs or anybody else uh, feel free to follow them thank you so much for tuning in
2: thanks for joining us this time if you haven't already subscribe to our show on your favorite podcasting app and get a new insightful episode from us every week the Future Podcast is hosted by Chris Doe and produced by me, Greg Gunn. Thank you to Anthony Barrow for editing and mixing this episode. And thank you to Adam Sanborn for our intro music. If you enjoyed this episode, then do us a favor by rating and reviewing our show on Apple Podcasts. It'll help us grow the show and make future episodes that much better. Have a question for Chris or me? Head over to thefuture.com slash Chris and ask away. We read every submission and we just might answer yours in a later episode. If you'd like to support the show and invest in yourself while you're at it, visit thefuture.com. You'll find video courses, digital products, and a bunch of helpful resources about design and creative business. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.